Before it was kind of my secret crazy project. Now I got the Nobel Prize, I can openly speak about it. I dream of converting CO2 into C and O2. A chemist with a pipe dream, or a Nobel laureate with an inspiring vision. Being awarded a Nobel Prize can grant the recipient the freedom and authority to advocate for left-field ideas. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard Benjamin List, the 2021 Chemistry Laureate. He was awarded the prize together with David Macmillan for his work in developing asymmetric organocatalysis, a tool for building new molecules in cleaner and more efficient ways. Benjamin List is a director at the Max Planck Institute for Coal Research. As a child, he became interested in chemistry because he thought chemists were great thinkers who had all the keys to unlocking the mysteries of the universe. When I realized chemists are not enlightened beings and don't understand everything, it was too late and I loved chemistry for what it is, playing around with molecules. <laughs> Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arezas. Benjamin List talks about the beauty of atom economy, how he deals with his aversion to Mondays, and how his experiences during the tsunami of 2004 have shaped his outlook on life. But first, he speaks about the morning in October 2021 when he received the news of the prize and tried to convince his co-laureate, David Macmillan, that it wasn't all just a hoax. So he told us that he'd bet you $1,000 that it hadn't actually been true. It's true, yeah. So you were trying to convince him that it was the case, and he was not believing you, or how was it happening? So, you know, Gerald Hansen said I should not speak to anybody about it, and, and I just said a, sent a text to him, Dave, wake up. And then he woke up and called me and then we spoke and I said, actually, I just received a call from Stockholm. They also tried to reach you. <laughs> so that was clear than what I was talking about. And then he said, oh, oh, sorry, Ben, I'm sorry to let you down, but I have these, these horrible students. They live in Sweden and, and make a prank. I didn't try to convince him, but I just said, well, if that has been a prank, it has been a really good one, you know, with voice imitators. And, and because I, I've heard Gerdon Hansen speaking, and I also spoke to Peter Somfai that I have met before. So I, for me, it was really real, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> After we hung up, then Dave sent by text. That's the good thing, because I can document that he had made this bet with me. You know, he sent a text saying, I, I bet $1,000. This is not real. And I said, okay, I, I take the bet. <laughs> so you, you formally accepted the bet? Yes, uh -huh. I did. It's all documented. <laughs> uh, well, since he lost and you won, has it been paid? Not yet. The last time I met him, in, I actually stepped into him in, this, in San Diego just a couple of weeks ago when I was at the ACS meeting by accident, which was really beautiful. So we hugged. It was a great moment. It was really delightful to see him then. And he said, oh, I actually, I don't have that kind of cash on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> but now, yesterday, I read an interview that he gave and he said, well, actually, I'm a Scotsman. And I think I will give him a hard time getting this 
this money. <laughs> this, this is a saga that can run and run. Yeah. But we know that there are a number of meetings this year. You'll be meeting in Lindau in the summer, and then you'll yeah. be meeting in Stockholm in, yes. in December. The pressure will be building. It'll be. <laughs> I, exactly. But in Germany, I think we, we have this saying, like, these kind of bets, it's kind of an honor thing, you know, that when you lose a bet, you pay. This is not, it has nothing to do with your Scottish or, or Fugel or whatever, you know, you, you pay. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm relaxed now. <laughs> I look forward to seeing how this develops during yeah, the too. next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Liss talks to Adam from his hometown of Frankfurt. When asked about the social perks of receiving the Nobel Prize, his eyes light up when he talks about being invited to Europa League games by his beloved football team, Eintracht Frankfurt. Like last week I was in Barcelona and that was of course amazing. Frank, my team won and it was incredible. And you know, that, that was special, but also the politicians I had a chance to interact with. I voted for our president of Germany. So we have this special voting system in Germany. So. The president is elected by all the members of the government and the same amount of people from the public. And I was one of those. Wow. And, yeah, and that was, of course, a unique uh, situation. All these people from parliament, all the politicians were there. I met the chancellor, the previous chancellor and the current chancellor, but also the same amount of people from the public that I had a chance to meet. For example, Uslem uh, Türeci from BioNTech. You know, she and her husband created the vaccine you know, that's now saving the world. And Ugo Sahin, I already met before. And that was interesting because before the announcement of the Nobel Prize, I wanted to start a, a collaboration with them because we had some idea how to make an even better vaccine. I know it's kind of unrelated to what I normally do, but I had this idea. And they were reacting, but a little bit hesitant, or, or let's, let's say slowly. I mean, they're incredibly busy and everybody wants something from them right now, as you may imagine, right? So, but after the announcement of the Nobel Prize, everything was a little bit facilitated and we quickly <laughs> met and it was really nice to meet him. And then now we have actually an ongoing collaboration. It's quite exciting. Oh, that's thrilling. But how lovely that a concomitant sort of benefit is that it opens up these avenues to new associations, although that must also be awfully distracting because uh, it's not as if you didn't have a full-time occupation before. Yeah, that's true. No, I, th I feel like I have two jobs. I have my, my, my traditional job. I do science, but I'm also the Nobel Prize winner. And I have to also, this is an, kind of an additional job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but for the time being, it's, it's, it goes really well and I, I keep my, my health and, you know, I don't eat on Mondays, for example. That's one of my secrets oh, really? <laughs> to stay young. Yeah, since already two years. Every time on Tuesday, I feel rejuvenated. It's really, really, really nice. So when you say you don't eat on Mondays, what, nothing at all? Yeah, just nothing. I have a cup, two cup coffees. That's all I have. And presumably drink lots of water. Yeah, just water, to, yeah. of course. Yeah. Plenty, yeah. Yeah. Where did the idea come from? Well, you have maybe heard of this intermittent fasting thing that's very popular. And, and I practice yoga and in, in the yoga tradition also, that's part of the exercises people do. And the health benefits of fasting are long known. Now they're also being investigated scientifically. And I feel it with my own body. I feel great after one day of fasting. How did you pick Mondays? The start of the week, the day that everything happens? I, I never liked Mondays so much, you know. <laughs> also my dad, he also never liked Mondays, interestingly. So he used the Monday mornings to play tennis he says it's kind of interesting right yeah normally you this is when you're already nervous on sunday evening because you think oh and the next week is going to start what what are all the items that are coming 
And he just refused to this kind of life where you come into the office already anxious about what's, you know, what am I going to do in this week? And I also never really liked Mondays. I, I try to avoid anything, any meetings, any traveling and so on. And so that's why I think it's a, it's a good day. You know, the other thing is for me, I only drink alcohol during the weekends. Mm -hmm. I think it's the British style, right? <laughs> I heard. <laughs> well, no, I think the British style is just to drink more alcohol during the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so in my case, it's like, I mean, I love champagne, as, as you may have heard. <laughs> and, and so the, from Monday to Friday, I'm sort of eagerly awaiting Friday night so I can have a glass of champagne. <laughs> so I drink alcohol on the weekends. And then on Monday, I'm kind of cleansing my, my body. It feels healthy. It feels like repairing the body and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm not excessive about anything. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. And yes, the champagne, yes, this mythical number of 113 bottles of champagne that your lab bought for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we drank all of them. Was there any significance in the 113 or is it just what they could get hold of? You know, the Ruhr area is a relatively poor area, as you, as you may know. It used to be the industrial heart of Germany, but now we have a lot of unemployment here. And so that was all the bottles they could get on that day. Another image from the last six months, of course, is that beautiful video of you arriving back at the lab and your mm -hmm. entire organization, your entire lab being out there on the balconies, clapping you and being so thrilled yeah. to see you and be part of all this. The lab was doing beautifully already, but has it been a, a boost for everybody? I mean, I, there's three things I can say to this. One, this moment is unforgettable. It's like, of course, this whole day was special. We talked early on, so you, you kind of remember how excited I was. And when Göran Hansen called, I was so excited that he said, wait, wait, I, I haven't even told you what I'm going to tell you. I was already, oh, I cannot thank you enough before he even announced that I'm going to win the Nobel Prize, right? So that was a special moment. But then arriving here and seeing all these people on the balcony in ecstasy and, and joy, this was just the whole institute was kind of vibrating in joy. And I spoke to, to so many people the, the next day, like the mechanics, the woodworker, all these people, the administration people. But also yesterday, I spoke to one of my colleagues, the directors. They were equally happy. And that shows you how what a nice place this is. I mean, not on the outside, I have to admit. <laughs> but, but like from the spirit, like we're really an institute. And they all could share this joy with me. It was not like... Like, okay, congratulations, you know. I would have more deserved it. Like, perhaps at other institutions it's like that. I don't know. But I felt like it was an honest joy they, they had about it. So that was, that was great. The other element I wanted to share with you is that already before the Nobel Prize, I just coincidentally, like uh, a month before, I, I received a call from the ACS the president that I won a, a nice award, the ACS Herbert C. Brown Award for Creative Work in, in Synthetic Chemistry, I think it's called. And somehow this award was really special because it was, I think I was the only German who have received it. And, you know, the Americans are, they tend to focus a little bit on, on their own world, right? And, and the Europeans and the Japanese and the Chinese are kind of viewed a little bit in, in a distant. 
the American Chemical Society have got a lot of chemists. So exactly. Yes. They, they are also there, probably number one or close to that. So it's understandable. But that was so special. And in any case, I don't know if it was this award, but in general, this time was special for me because I felt like, wow, this is the peak of my, my scientific life, of my personal life also, because for me, I don't separate this. And it was in such joy and, and we were celebrating our these amazing organocatalysts that we have developed. I think it's scientifically the best phase of my life, right? We have amazing catalysts that are beyond anything that, that could have been done before. So the joy and the excitement was already there, you know, when then the call came. And then the third thing I wanted to say is that I don't think it has initially boosted the creativity and, and the scientific productivity of my lab but more the opposite. So everybody was kind of relieved and, and relaxed a little bit, but now it's getting better. Not, not better, but back to normal. Maybe it does everyone good to take a break and sort of be happy. In and they deserved it, yeah, of course. Yeah. I just wanted to pick up on something you just said. You, you say that you, you don't separate your personal and your scientific life. Yeah. I think many people would find that very interesting. So many young scientists ask laureates, how they should handle their private lives, how they should handle their home time, because they see it in conflict with the need to be in the lab all the time, and they just don't know how to balance things. So that's an intriguing comment. Tell me more. Yeah, I also see that with this, I don't know if it's, if I should say that this current younger generation, because it's an old man thing to say, right? <laughs> and then probably I, I shouldn't, you know, generalize this, but I never worried about life work balance so much as I feel my current students think about this sometimes, some of them. Because for me, this is my life. It's sort of not distinguishable. It's I enjoy what I do, right? It rarely feels like work. It feels like what I want to do. Mm. And that's what I also have as an advice to, to everybody. Try to follow your enthusiasm and do what you're really passionate about and what you really love to do. And I mean, of course, if it makes a living, perfect, right? And then in that case, then you don't worry so much about life work balance because the work doesn't feel like work, right? I suppose some people worry that, is it perhaps seen by others in your life as selfish to concentrate too hard on, you know, the, getting things done? Like family members, and for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's that's a topic. <laughs> that's a topic. You're right. <laughs> Benjamin List's field of research is organic synthesis and organocatalysis. Synthesis is the process of transforming simpler organic molecules into more complex ones using chemical reactions. Catalysis is a way of making synthesis more efficient, cost-effective and sustainable using specific compounds, catalysts, that speed up the rate of chemical reactions without themselves being changed by the process. His research is conducted at the Max Planck Institute, where he works together with a team of PhD students. Let's talk a little bit about the creative environment in the lab. You have a large lab, you have lots of people, lots of bright especially young people around you. How do you handle their careers, if you like? Are you letting them make their own way? Do you control people closely? What do you feel gives them the most creative environment? So first of all, I, when I interview them, I make sure that they are like me, that they're passionate about chemical synthesis and catalysis in the first place, that they really enjoy it. And that's not just you know, a means to get a job later. 
because this is the place where we are like this. And, and I want my, my coworker also to be, to be passionate and enthusiastic about chemical synthesis. Otherwise, I don't know. I never fire anybody, for example, even if I made a mistake, what happens in, in hiring somebody and, and I see, you know, this person is not as passionate or as excited as we are about this work. I don't force anybody to do anything. I'm not sort of micromanaging. I give them a lot of freedom. What I would say occasionally is like, you know, this is an important phase in your life now, the PhD. It kind of determines the trajectory of your career, ultimately. If you invest now, then this career angle is just a little bit steeper, right? And then you get also later, you get a better job and have a better life. And then you will be the boss and you have a group and, and then you can do whatever you want, right? Whereas if you think now is a good time for work-life balance, for example, I had a PhD student and she had a horse and then every day she had to clean the horse and, and ride it. And, and I don't know, it takes a lot of time, right? And I would not say don't, you know, don't have a horse. Of course, if you think you need a horse, okay, fine. But you have to be aware then that it might not be the perfect time to have a horse, essentially when you, when you determine the trajectory of your career life. Now, it's a good time to invest and work hard, hard in the sense, passionate, of course, it shouldn't feel hard, ideally. Of course, there are times when it's difficult. So I'm, I'm, I feel like more like I'm, I'm a, a friendly advisor. It's, it's, it's their choice. You know, if you think that's enough, fine. I, I tell them the, the, the consequences, but I, I'm not pushy. I'm not pushing anybody around. I love the image of having a horse. It's become the symbol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too much distraction. <laughs> I always say, if you think it's a good time to have a horse, it will be my guest. Sure, but <laughs> then you will always have bosses and you will be pushed around for the rest of your life. That's, yeah. I exaggerate, but I think they understand what I mean. Yes, leaving people to make their own decisions sounds an excellent formula. Um, and I guess it really sorts out those who are going to be able to, to work out how to do this and what to do. There's a couple of things that I'd like to follow up, but one is um, whether that was the way you were brought up. Were your parents very prescriptive or did they kind of leave you to make up your own mind? My biological parents, my mom, especially because they were divorced early. So I, I grew up with my mom. She was, um, that was kind of the freestyle that they believed in, in bringing up their kids. I was in the, in the so-called Kinderladen, anti-authoritarian Kinderladen. It's kind of basically the kids are free and they can do whatever they want, kind of. There were people around like the kindergarten nurse, but they would pretty much let us do whatever we want. It was a very interesting uh, format in the late 60s, early 70s. And I was in such a kindergarten, but at the same time, my family was also kind of a, a traditional big family with famous people. My auntie, a Nobel Prize winner, my great-great-grandfather, I think there's a picture somewhere behind me. He, he was a chemist already. And then his son was a famous doctor. And so there were artists and, and photographers on the father's side. So it, at the same time, there was sort of this, this tradition, a scientific and, and art-loving tradition. But we grew up kind of totally free. But how lovely and trusting and free thinking of your family to just let it happen and, and trust that it would work out. Yeah, I went to a Rudolf Steiner nursery and apparently they asked me to leave because all I would draw was pictures of aeroplanes dropping bombs on people. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't, didn't go so well with them, I imagine. <laughs> but back to you, you obviously 
in this free environment, mm. uh, discovered yourself to be a curious and intelligent child and mm. wonderful. But I'm not sure if, I mean, I, I would not say that my creativity or, or, or my, my curiosity was a result of that upbringing. There's also a strong, let's put it, genetic mm -hmm. component, right? Like we are who we are basically when we are born already or when we shortly after we've been conceived or created. You know? How did you find your way to chemistry? That was really weird. And I, the problem is I don't really know what I was thinking then because I was really young when I began being interested in chemistry. And I don't remember why, but I thought the chemists are basically enlightened beings that understand everything. I'm sure chemists would agree with you. <laughs> exactly. I, and then now I realized it's true. <laughs> end of story. That's, that's Stop. the end of the story. <laughs> no, somehow I, I figured that, you know, the, the universe, everything is made out of matter and, and matter is made out of molecules and atoms and how they interact and how they change. And that's what chemists understand. So I really thought they understand everything. Like, why are we how we are as humans? Mm -hmm. Why do we make these decisions and, so, and all these things, you know? And so I had a philosophical interest, I think, a childish philosophical interest. And that's what drove me to um, chemistry. And then I, I went to the local library. There was no internet then. I guess in your youth, it was similar. I couldn't just Google. Absolutely. Right? No. And, and so I went to the library and, and took a or maybe it was a flea market, I don't remember, and got a, a chemistry book in this old German font. Oh, the old script, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, that, uh, from that, that area, <laughs> it was hard to read. <laughs> but I found recipes like how you work with sulfuric acid, strong acids, how you can dissolve metals, you know, amazing things like this, and how you make gunpowder. And then when I realized chemists are not enlightened beings and don't understand everything, it was too late and I, I love chemistry for, for what it is, you know. <laughs> it's playing around with molecules. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, yes, you had your own little enlightenment going on as you grew up because your original conception is a sort of medieval view of science in a way, it's nice. It's all unity. Yeah, alchemistic. Yes, alchemistic, exactly. When we were talking just now, you, you described looking for evidence in young people wanting to join the lab, that they take the same joy in synthesis, they have the same passion for synthesis. Yeah, ideally, what, do, yeah. what does that mean? What does a passion for synthesis mean? Chemistry is different from physics, let's say, let's compare it to astrophysics, for example. It's, it makes a good comparison because it's also understanding the world, actually, on a, on a much bigger scale or volume, let's put it this way, than chemistry, right? We're just you know, kind of small. But with astrophysics, the problem is you cannot really do experiments, right? Because you cannot just explode the sun or, or, you know, collide to solar systems and see what happens, you know, like what we, we chemists can do in contrast. And that's so amazing about chemistry. We can, we can design experiments. Uh, we can create our own research objects, as a famous chemist has put it, right? We create our, the objects of our science. It's fascinating. So that's this creative aspect. And then the other aspect is these molecules that we create or these materials, 
they potentially have a big impact on our life on this planet, right? This could be a medicine against cancer, or it could be a catalyst with which you can convert CO2 into diamond, like my, my dream reaction. <laughs> All these amazing things, right? And that's what, what I find so fascinating about, about chemistry. I like the fact we go back to alchemy again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's, it's possible, right? Now I speak about this reaction all the time. Before it was kind of my secret, you know, crazy project. Now I got the Nobel Prize. I can openly speak about it. <laughs> I dream of really converting CO2 into C and O2. That's my, my absolute dream reaction. It's kind of interesting because you don't find this in the chemical literature. Nobody works on this particular reaction even though it would be the world-changing transformation. It would end climate change and get rich. Yeah. <laughs> we would convert, we take out the CO2 from the atmosphere, which is causing the, the climate change, and convert it into coal with which we can make any chemistry, or we can just put it back into the earth, which would also be fine because it's not sort of polluting or anything. It's, there's no problem. If you really want, you can even make gasoline from it, right? and then drive combustion engine cars again, because it, you take it out from the atmosphere anyway, right? Mm. It would be lovely. And, and we would put oxygen back into the atmosphere. I think it's a, it's a, a cool transformation. And, and in fact, if you think about it, that's what plants are doing in a way. Mm. That's photosynthesis in essence, sort of the essence of photosynthesis. It's beautiful. And it also raises the topic of vision in science, because I suppose in a way, you have to be quite idealistic to be a scientist or a chemist, to look ahead to something so beautiful and so mm -hmm. impossible at the moment. Maybe for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exciting. How much does that sort of daydreaming and visualisation play in? How much of a role does that play in the way you work? Yeah, I am like this. I realise this. I, I like to pick really sometimes crazy problems that really might not be solvable. And to be honest, back then, when I did my organocatalysis experiments in 1999, I felt like alone. The loneliness of that, of a scientist. Now, I think actually it's important. It's kind of a, almost like a, a law that if you're doing something really potentially revolutionary, you have to feel lonely. Because, you know, if you wouldn't feel lonely, if everybody else, then everybody else would already be doing it. And so it cannot be a scientific revolution that you're about to find. It, it, unfortunately, it doesn't guarantee if you feel lonely that this will lead to a scientific revolution. But I think it's definitely a, a requirement. If you're so invested in an idea and you're giving your whole being to it and you're working on it or sort of alone, mm. then you must be quite worried that somebody else might be going to scoop you. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a pressure that must be hard to live with sometimes. Yeah, especially if you don't have a tenured position. Unfortunately, with organocatalysis, it was like this almost from day one. The, not from day one. I mean, in the beginning, I felt lonely. And then the loneliness was... Sort of replaced by being in an extremely competitive situation all of a sudden, right? It's kind of so <laughs> crazy, right? From, from one day essentially to the next, when I realized Macmillan is there, there was certainly an overlap. It was not the same, but there was certainly an overlap. And occasionally over the years, then we did actually scoop each other once in a while, you know? Mm. 
And then, of course, the whole world, I mean, exaggerating, but hundreds of groups after a while joined our efforts and it became incredibly competitive. Yeah, that was stressful. And it's, but as I said, it's much more stressful if you don't have a permanent job. And uh, I mean, people say it has to be like this. This is the way science works, right? This competitiveness is driven by egos. They want to be first. They want to win Nobel Prizes or become rich. But sometimes I wonder if, if it's really true, if it's really a requirement. And I, I envision, <laughs> I think about other models of how science could be done, right? Like a more collaborative way. It's not like now, now the Nobel Prize winner tries to speak uh, Nobel Prize winner-like. I, I really think, I wonder like how would science be? Would it be really worse if we wouldn't be so competitive, right? Because for example, the taxpayers might say, if you work competitively, then we are funding the same research in two different labs at the same time, which is actually true, right? For example, in protein crystallography, they all work on the same proteins. They want to reveal the structure of, I don't know, photosystem two, let's say, or, or some other important protein. And they're extremely competitive and secretive about what they're doing, but they probably all try the same kind of experiments in many different labs around the world, spending a huge amount of money. And then only one wins, yeah. right? And, and he gets the, the award and then so on. And I don't know if it's so efficient. There's obviously arguments for reproducibility, and it's good to have things done more than once. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. But the collaborative model would be potentially wonderful. But then, of the course, the problem is that, it, as you said earlier, it's, it's all about getting tenure. It's all about making your mark so that you're mm. the one selected to have mm. a safe career. So it would need a complete redesign of the model by which people are assessed and, and given mm. security. It can be a, a mixed feeling on the one hand, you think like, oh, damn it, they, they got it, you know, and, and we didn't. But on the other hand, you, you also see like, wow, beautiful, you know, we, we enjoy science also from other people. I mean, it, it would be weird if we wouldn't, right? It'd be kind of really egoic. <laughs> yeah. And you don't start out in science like that. When children first become interested in science, they like other people's science. That's what yeah, it's all about. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. So I wonder if at one point we could have an open science where, for example, I think science is already moving in this direction subtly, right? Like we have electronic lab journals. And then in my group now, the question is, shall we have an open lab journal where everybody can see everybody else's experiments? Huh. What an interesting question, yes. Yeah, that's already an interesting question. I mean, normally you would say, why not, right? It's, it's, but we have different styles in, in, in this institute already. But ultimately, you could envision a lab journal that's globally available to everybody. I know it's a bit idealistic, and I realize the time is not ripe for that. But it's kind of the same. I mean, it also sounds naive, but why do we still have nationalism? I think it's timely to think about this, right? It's so ridiculous. You know, there's these countries, okay, you know, we are the good people, but beyond that border, 100 meters away, you're the bad people. I mean, what a silly idea. Ultimately, it should all evolve towards one world. I know it's, time is not right, and at this moment in time, it might sound naive and so on. But... Or at this moment in time, what better time for someone to have some vision that takes us somewhere else? Because, well, this clearly isn't working, is it? It isn't, exactly, yeah. On the 26th of December 2004, Benjamin List's life was irrevocably changed. He was celebrating Christmas with his wife Sabina 
and their two young sons, Theo and Paul, who were three and five years old at the time. They were in Khao Lak, close to the beach, when the tsunami struck. We all ended up in the ocean, deep in the black water, being hit by cars and houses and I don't know what. And it, I felt like I was under the water for at least, I don't know, two or three minutes. And 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 I didn't know what, what's happening. And, and, you know, it was so quick. I didn't even had a name that this is, this is a tsunami, you know. And the same was true also for my kids. But ultimately, we all survived dramatically against the odds. You know, in this, in this hotel, this place where we were, 75% of all the people died. Oh, my goodness. And on that beach, hundreds or even thousands of people died in, yeah. in Kaolak in Thailand. It was one of the worst places in the world, actually, when it happened. Mm-hmm. Also, our, the friends that traveled with us died. It was, it was really, really horrible. And we all survived. Ultimately, it took some time. My older son was injured, and I also developed a, a major injury on the foot. But ultimately, we came out, and that, for me, was an important moment in my life because I, I became aware of the true needs that I have, you know, and my needs are much less than, than I thought before. I thought, you know, I want to get recognized for my scientific discoveries. I, I want to have a big house and a car, whatever, you know, like these the typical things that we all think make us happy. And, and when you are in this kind of situation, you realize that to be happy, there's not much you need, right? You need fresh air to breathe, clean water to drink, some food, not so much, ideally, right? A place to sleep and, and you know, family around you and friends. So that's it. And sometimes I think about these poor people who, who are hit by COVID really badly and they're in the hospital on their belly and cannot breathe anymore. Mm. What they think, and, and I, I can really imagine that they think like, okay, I, I give up everything I have. I don't need anything else, but just the ability to breathe. And I would be happy for the rest of my life. I can really see how they think about it. And, and uh, even though there's nothing good to be in such a situation, of course, uh, neither in a tsunami or being really sick, that can be the, a good thing for your life then later to, to realize actually that there's not so many objects and, and things that you normally think would make you happy that you really need. That was for me important. And I, at that point in time, I couldn't care less if McMillan cites our work or somebody else, you know, <laughs> or if I win this award or get that raise or, you know, whatever. It's, I realized it's not important. And that's still with me, fortunately. Of course, you know, after half a year or so, I came back to normal and became <laughs> yeah. as competitive as I was. <laughs> but with that, gained knowledge yes. of my, my sort of true needs for happiness. Yes, in some terrible way, it's a privilege to be put in a situation where you get this realization. Because it's interesting because you can listen to somebody tell you this. You are, we're listening to you now. Yeah. And it should profoundly affect the way that you know I think or other people think and for a moment it does hearing yeah. you, you it makes perfect sense yeah. but it is amazing how quickly we forget yeah exactly and just go back to I don't know purchasing something <laughs> exactly like a red Ferrari yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> thank you for speaking about it because what a profound insight and how marvelous that everybody in your family did make it um, wow. we're still grateful like every Christmas, that was Boxing Day, so we celebrate our, our family birthday in, in a way. And yes. We always think about it. Yeah. Lovely. When we spoke in October, we touched 
briefly on the on the beauty of chemistry and mm -hmm. i suppose for most people they can see that chemistry is useful they know that chemistry can be smelly if you ask them how many chemicals they want in their food they say none <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> I read on Twitter this morning a big chemical spill hadn't happened at some plant. That alone is not a news story, right? And then you read the story and there's nothing about which chemical, yeah. right? So chemicals are considered evil, you know. <laughs> Chemistry is is bad and stinky and toxic and polluting and so on. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, why am I even speaking to you now? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Against that backdrop of at least some part of public opinion, there is the beauty of chemistry and building molecules and maybe it's impossible to answer but when you think about what you're doing your next experiment the way you're putting things together how does that beauty manifest itself for you i think a big part of that beauty i cannot really describe to lay people it's you really have to be a chemist like to say this is a beautiful chemical synthesis of 10 steps right that there's so much knowledge and so much science in it that it's hard to explain But there are elements that I think I can explain. And for example, one concept by, by Barry Trost from Stanford University, it's called atom economy. And basically that means all the atoms of the starting materials that you use end up in the product. And that chemists consider beautiful. It looks beautiful, right? On a paper, you draw this and then there's nothing, no waste. And the beauty of, of that particular beauty is that it also translate into into big scale like chemical chemistry like chemical industry you know then you don't produce waste automatically yes there's a, a beautiful efficiency about it yeah and yeah. when you don't have to bring in special groups in your molecules to enable a certain reactivity right you that always implies one step to sort of activate your substrate and then you can do whatever you want but you do it directly i always like like to be super direct as direct and perfect as you can ever be like my my phd supervisor was very conceptual and he didn't care about these details right how many atoms you would waste here and there and how many oxidations and reductions would be needed to accomplish a certain transformation because for him it was kind of a certain functional equivalent but i i really want to go for the real systems now so it's a different interest now it's kind of hard to explain but but yeah no no extra atoms no extra wasteful reagents no directing groups no protecting groups no auxiliaries you know like direct i can see it get straight there cut through all the superfluous things yeah. that have been yeah. built into the, the reactions yes It looks simple then in the end, but it requires a lot of thinking, engineering and design and so on to enable that. No, I mean, if, if, if one turns the pages of an organic chemistry textbook and sees all those myriad reactions and shapes, but then just yeah, working out how you can do that in the cleanest, smartest way. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. You started by comparing chemists and astrophysicists. There's this lovely concept of chemical space, all of the undiscovered chemistry that lies out there, all the molecules that haven't been made. Yeah. And of course, humans have so far made only a tiny, tiny fraction of the possible things you could go out there and build. Do you dwell on that? Do you think of yourself in, in chemical space, pioneering? Mm -hmm. I, I think that I'm happy that I don't have this pessimistic view 
that everything has been done already. There's nothing I can contribute. It's kind of, you know, now, now we have discovered this reaction that should be the last of all possibly to discover reactions because some people have that, especially when they, when they get a little bit older. It's happening in all disciplines, not just in chemistry, right? For example, there was in, in history, there was this guy, Francis Fukuyama, a philosopher. He said, this is the end of history now after the, the end of the Cold War. <laughs> <It's>, That's right. <laughs> I, he, he now says I was wrong there. <laughs> and, but in chemistry, you also have that when people mature a little bit, they think I've seen everything, you know, nothing else can, can come. And people were really also pessimistic about the, the future of organocatalysis really great scientific heroes of mine were saying, okay, now you have discovered this intermolecular aldo reaction, but what's next? I mean, I, I cannot see how this could lead to a career even, right? <laughs> now it has led to thousands of careers, to industrial processes and to Nobel Prize and so on. You know, That's why I try to be, keep open to the possibility that there are millions of new things that we can discover that keeps me going. I'm still so excited about my field and I'm very, very grateful for that because I, I've seen it in others. It's a joy like to be open to, to this chemical space, to the vastness of the chemical space. <laughs> well, it's, it's come across so strongly in this conversation, how you're open to avenues opening up in all fields, in every aspect of life. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a beautiful conversation. Thank you, thank you. My great pleasure too. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Benjamin List, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Carlin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with Benjamin List's co-laureate, David McMillan, and get his side of the story concerning their $1,000 bet. You can find previous seasons and conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 